Hello, everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Wes. I'm Zach. And we are very excited to have Dr. Lee Jessam joining us here today. Dr. Jessam grew up poor in Brooklyn, starting out in the slums and moving to public housing at age five. At just 13, he was forced into independence through his teen years. After dropping out of college once, Dr. Jessam finished his undergraduate degree at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and pursued a PhD at the University of Michigan. His dissertation studied the effect of teacher expectations on student performance, but did so with a twist. Instead of performing lab studies, Dr. Jessam studied expectations in the real world. The data he found defied social psychology doctrine. The effect of teacher expectations, which were thought to cause self-fulfilling prophecies in students, was small. Teacher expectations predicted student achievement not because it affected how the student thought of him or herself, but rather because teacher expectations were often accurate. Today, Dr. Jessam continues to conduct groundbreaking research in social psychology and also tours the country to discuss the scientific failures and to propose solutions to counter these failures. Thank you so much for join- joining us, Dr. Jessam. One of the most interesting things we've heard from other speakers on our show is the concept of inflection points or points uh, in people's lives where they realize they needed to pivot either personal or career-wise. So my question to you is, could you share a few impl- inflection points with our listeners? Wow. Well, sure. So, um, first, thanks for having me. This whole thing is a great experience. But um, I hated school. One of the grand ironies of my life as I grew up, I hated school. I mean, like, really viscerally <laughs> hated school. Um, and so, I, after graduating high school, which I despised, I kind of went to college just because sort of, like, everybody did it. I really didn't have any reason, and I went there, and I was very unhappy. And so I dropped out. Um, and uh, I dabbled with going back and I did actually go back and then I really dropped out. And then I worked these sort of ridiculous dead-end jobs for years until I met my wife, Lisa. She wasn't my wife then, but I met Lisa, who really encouraged me to go back to school. And she really, you know, she was very persuasive. And after working enough of these dead-end jobs for a long enough time, I kind of realized, well, this was really silly. And that, yes, even if I hate school, I have to endure it. And being that the the idea uh, at that time, for me, the idea of having a job, a career that was intrinsically interesting, that, that it was what I wanted to do, was not even on my radar. It was like what a job was, was this onerous necessity in order to earn an income in order to get through life mm-hmm. uh, because you needed to eat and pay the rent. Um, so so when that's the case, when you have no intrinsic interest in like anything, um, what do you do? Well, you would go back with what I thought I would do would be go back to school and uh, major in something in which I can make a lot of money. Because if you don't care about you, you might as well just make you know boatloads of money. Going to finance, so, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I was going to finance, business, economics, something. That's exactly right. Right. So uh, that was my plan. You know, now after not having been in school for years, I figured I would start off light, that I would only take a handful of courses and kind of ease my way back in. So that first semester back, this was at UMass Boston, which was an amazing school, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, I took a math requirement, an economics course, and it's some distribution requirement, like an anthropology course, which I had no interest in, but met some sort of requirement. But having been to school before, I knew that 
you can get caught up in a school bureaucracy and sort of get really seriously screwed in ways that you don't anticipate because you didn't know how to work the bureaucracy. So, for example, at Rutgers, you know, where I am right now, students get deregistered. Like, mm. they take courses, and they think they're all signed up, and then there's some bureaucratic or financial screw-up, and then they get kicked out of the course. So, and yeah. I knew this kind of thing happened. So, I said, okay, I'm only taking three courses. The last thing that I want to have happen is to have some snafu where, like, I think I'm registered, but I didn't fill out the form right, and I'm not in the course, and I'm going to end up taking one course. Like, I wanted to get my life going, right? Yeah. So, I said, okay, I'm going to take a couple of extra courses. Not because I really wanted to take any extra courses, but just so that I didn't, I had a schedule that I could make some progress, even if I got bumped out or closed out or whatever it might be. Okay, fine. So I said, okay, well, what am I going to take? Well, I'm going to take uh, uh, courses that uh, in an area that I despised least. So I, just, I hated everything, even when I went to college. I hated everything. <laughs> but what I despised least, I had uh, a couple of psychology courses, which I hated. I just didn't hate them as much as everything else. Okay, not an so, optimistic start. No, it was. It was. Yeah, it was like very, you know, very functional and practical. And I'm going to do what I need to do to get by. Okay, so I take these two courses, and I start going to all five courses because, again. I am like paranoid that like there's some aspect of the system that I don't understand that I'm going to end up, you know, it's going to be a problem for me. So I start going to all five courses. The two side courses was an incredibly, well, one was a social psychology course, which, you know, I'll hold up. And the other was this like learning and memory course. The learning and memory course was incredibly dry and technical and mathematical. The social psychology course was kind of sexy and charismatic and more animated teacher. Within two weeks, I loved both courses. Mm. Both courses, including the really dry, technical, and boring course. When you when you hadn't enjoyed the course before? I'd hated it. Hate it. Well, I hadn't had the exact courses. I'd had like intro and something else, but, but I hadn't had these. I hadn't had a learning and memory course. I hadn't had a social psychology course. But within, by the end of the two weeks, I lo- it was, so it's like, okay, I'm just going to keep both of these courses. Um, you know, it, it's like, I'll just deal with the five courses. So that was inflection point number one, where it's like, oh my God, this is like stuff I actually like, like more than like. It was like, it, it just, it was like, fa- it was utterly fascinating to me. Like, I, like I just, I, I couldn't get enough of either one of the courses. Okay. So kind of, this is inflection point number two, towards the end of that first, that's my first semester back, um, the professor in the social psychology course was an active researcher and invited students to uh, work in his lab as research assistants for credit. You know, I think it was officially independent study, but it wasn't really independent. It's like he had projects and you assisted with those projects. So I mean, I thought this was great. So get credit to do this stuff even more. This was like amazing. What a deal. <laughs> so I signed up to do that. And again, it was not a very amazing project. It, it, it was actually, a, he was doing, he studied media and the effects of media on people, on people's beliefs and attitudes. And he wanted to study how watching soap operas actually uh, led, influenced people's beliefs about the world. So that's all this was. We would, I, I, 
I spent a semester watching soap operas and coding <laughs> the people's behaviors and how attractive they were and what they were doing and all this stuff. And it was a really weird project, which I loved. At the end of that semester, so this is now towards the end of my first year back, the end of my second semester, um, I walked, you know, and I had a semester doing this sort of soap opera coding stuff. I walked into his office. This is Professor Michael Milburn. Um, and in a small office, kind of like this room. And I said, okay, you convinced me. And he said, what are you talking about? I want to be a social psychologist. Tell me what I got to do. <laughs> and he did. Um, he invited me to do an honors thesis with him, which was actually on stereotypes. Um, and that, uh, that was inflection point number two. I loved it as much as I loved anything else I'd ever done. And that was just sort of launched me into graduate school in this career. So was that, was that, I mean, you make it seem as if you just um, like fell in love with psychology and then um, ditched all your designs of becoming a financial banker. Absolutely. Was that hard for you, especially no. growing up? No, no, it was no? not, no. It was, it was, it was a non-issue. It was like when, at least for me, I can't speak for anybody else. I love this stuff. There was no issue. Once, once I loved doing this stuff and I had it, and it was like amazing to me that like I could, they would pay me to do this. So, yeah, it was a non-issue. Completely mm. non-issue. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, it had other side benefits, like going to graduate school in a non-clinical psychology. You know, in any, in, and it's true for any of the non-clinical, you know, clinical as therapists and all that kind of stuff. But if you did uh, sort of uh, biological psychology or developmental psychology or cognitive psychology, um, at almost any high-quality graduate school, they would pay your way through graduate school. So, so you know, coming out of a background where I had no money, there was no way like I was going to lay out whatever, in those days, $20,000, $30,000 a year to go to medical school or something like that. The idea of having graduate school fully paid for, this was also the side benefit uh, that was just incredible. And so you put all that together between that and just being intrinsic, just deeply, it just pulled at me, intrinsically interested in this stuff. It's a complete non-issue. Hmm. Yeah. So you said that you fell in love and you went to your professor and you said, I want to be a social psychologist. Yes. Um, and, and that's an interesting point that you bring up because as you started going into this field, a lot of your work has been kind of critiquing and looking at the methods that Absolutely. exist in social psychology. So I was wondering if you could just maybe briefly tell us how your work has looked at that field of study somewhat critically and um, how you've dealt with that as a social psychologist yourself and how you deal with criticizing people in your field and kind of getting that criticism back. Right. So... The entire point of any science, it's social science or natural science, is to find out things that are actually true and were not really known before. However, there are many things that pull scientists in directions away from the truth. Sometimes there are incentives and motivations, so... You know, we're all interested in advancing our careers and sort of, you know, getting jobs and promotions and, you know, being successful and getting nice fat raises and all these. That's fine. This, you know, that's the way the world is. But, like, truth is not part of that. Like, it's not antithetical to that. It's not necessarily in opposition to any of that. But those are not, those are, like, independent of seeking the truth. So you have that. And then you have traditions of training and practice sometimes that are suboptimal, that, that produce 
results that seem to show something that don't actually show something. And then you have kind of, even among scientists, wishful thinking, you know? Um, so for me, I first discovered this in, it was like a slow moving discovery for me. In the early mid eighties, I started doing research on social stereotypes, mostly experiments. I eventually moved into both experiments and non-experimental, so real-world stuff on stereotypes. Um, when you do work in an area, it behooves you to read the literature, you know, the scientific literature that's the foundation for the modern understanding of whatever that right. topic is. And very early on, I started discovering the following very kind of weird pattern. This was long before I became interested in scientific integrity, but this was the sort of early development of this for me. Social scientists, not just social scientists, certainly social psychologists, but sociologists, political scientists, sometimes philosophers, in their scholarship, would write something like, stereotypes are inaccurate. This is common throughout the social sciences and humanities. And there would be either no reference, no citation to anything. It's just a statement, which in scientific literature, you, you really can't do that. If you're making a claim about a fact, I mean, unless you're talking about the sky being blue, so it's something so obvious that you don't have to document. If, you're, if your claim is that taking um, fish oil reduces heart disease, you, you can't just say that. You can't just make stuff up. You have to have reference to an article that seems to or did show that there's these beneficial effects. So it's the same mm -hmm. thing with stereotypes. Mm -hmm. But a, a large portion of the time, there'd be no reference at all. So if I wanted to look up the empirical scientific basis for the claim that stereotypes are inaccurate, I couldn't do it. But that wasn't all the time. About half the time, ballpark half, a substantial portion of the time, the claim would have a reference, a citation. So I would look at those citations. I would track those articles down and read those. Most, almost all the time, those articles, the cited article, had the claim itself that stereotypes were inaccurate without any empirical evidence supporting it. Hmm. Which I, about four or five years ago, I started calling that the black hole at the bottom of most declarations of stereotype inaccuracy. Because when you looked at the scientific evidence underlying it, there was no evidence there. Now, that doesn't mean stereotypes are accurate, but, but it's, that, that, requires, that required empirical evidence. Right? If you want to make a claim about that, you need data that bears on the claim. Okay, so... That's actually, in the case of stereotypes, a very tricky thing because everyone thinks they know what a stereotype is. People think they know what it means to be accurate or inaccurate. But to have any meaning, the claim that stereotypes or any particular stereotype is accurate or inaccurate, you have to define what it means, what a stereotype is, and you have to define what being accurate or inaccurate is. Um, so often in the scientific literature, stereotypes would be defined as inaccurate. Well, if they're defined as inaccurate, well, then they're inaccurate, right? I mean, it's like if enumeracy, for example, if enumeracy refers to misunderstanding math, then you're not, you're not doing a representative survey of how well people understand math. Enumeracy is defined as misunderstanding math. So if somebody 
if you ask somebody how much is two plus two and they say four, well, that is not an act of enumeracy. That doesn't fit under enumeracy because the person realized that two plus two is four. If the person doesn't understand um, uh, exponential rates of growth and therefore uh, doesn't understand how to invest for their future or their re retirement, well, then maybe that is an act of enumeracy. That might be a function of enumeracy to some degree. Okay. But enumeracy, by definition, is not understanding. Okay, so you could define stereotypes as inaccurate, which would then restrict a stereotype to only something that's inaccurate. Mm -hmm. if, if you've defined it that way, mm -hmm. then if I have a belief about a group that is accurate, is on target, well, then that would have to not be a stereotype. Mm -hmm. Okay, so psychologically, as far as I can tell, a belief is a belief. I mean, if you, you hold a belief... You hold it because you believe it to be true. You may have evidence for it. You may not have evidence for it. It seems kind of silly to exclude beliefs from this definition based on a presumption that they're inaccurate. Okay, so to most of us, a stereotype would be defined as a belief about the characteristics of a group. Okay, so now that becomes an empirical question. You know, it's very easy, for example, to get good data on lots of group characteristics and group differences. Like the U.S. Census has a, a, this wealth of data based on uh, racial and, and ethnic groups, about regional groups, about uh, men and women, about social class. I mean, it has all this wealth of data about groups. And so when you, when, when I guess over the last 25 years or so, um, it really began maybe in the late, late 80s, almost 30 years now, the serious scientific assessment of the accuracy of people's stereotypes. And that research is not complete. You can't make a general conclusion that stereotypes are accurate or inaccurate. It depends on who's, who holds what belief about what group at what time. But you can assess the overall levels of accuracy, the correspondence between people's beliefs about groups and what those groups are actually like using things like census data or other scientific assessments of group characteristics and group differences. And when you do that, in general, with a fair number of exceptions, people's beliefs about groups correspond imperfectly, but fairly well with what those groups are actually like. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Now, the, 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 as you can imagine, the social sciences have been fairly resistant to acknowledging that. It's not, it's not a very popular claim. It's not a popular You don't want to say that stereotypes are justified. That's right. That's, well, so, it, again, it depends on what you mean by stereotype, right? I mean, to the extent that stereotypes are these sort of pernicious propaganda tools you, to, you use to exploit and oppress, no, of course, you know, what reasonable person would want to say, yes, they're reasonable and justified. But as a psychologist... So, so that's sort of stereotypes at the level of, you know, sort of exploitative elites or power or whatever it might be. But as a psychologist, mostly we're interested in lay people, in everyday people. And so to understand whether their stereotypes are accurate or not, you have to ask them, well, what do you believe about this group or these characteristics? And then you need to compare that to fairly objective, rigorous data, something like census data. And when you do that, people look fairly, you know, they're imperfect. They, there are times when they're biased. They're occasionally highly inaccurate, but usually they're pretty accurate. Yeah. So one question we had before when we were just talking about um, sort of some of your work was you, this bias is prevalent in like the natural sciences as well. 
when you say this bias, you mean like um, or maybe like a willingness to find data that you want to find, sort of the um, scientific integrity problems that you. There's problems across the disciplines. So I guess the question would be, what what does that look like for any particular scientist? For example, in like physics, like um, I don't know anything about physics, but if I'm trying to discover gravitational waves, how does how can I, you know, I guess, does that mean they're making up data or anything like that? Or right. is it sort of more subtle than that? Yeah, it's, 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 to the extent that it happens, it's usually much more subtle. I think it's much more subtle. There, I have colleagues who believe that making up data is much more common than anyone suspects. Hmm. And it's hard to know, you know, because we don't really know what's going on most of the time. I'm not yet convinced that that's actually true, that there is rampant data fraud. I think that, it, I, I'm open to being convinced, but I don't believe that. I think there are very, very, my best guess is there is an ongoing, very low level of making up data. It's, it's sufficiently low that mostly, that that's not the primary problems that are plaguing sciences. I think, I, then I could be wrong, but I, I don't think that's the main problem. I think the main problem is much closer to what you were suggesting and is much more subtle than that. So one of the um, sort of well-known manifestations of confirmation bias is that people in general, not just scientists... And for listeners, confirmation bias is... Um, can you give us a quick definition sure. of that? Sure. Confirmation bias is sort of a greater willingness to accept and believe things that are consistent with what you want to believe or what you expect and things that are inconsistent with what you want to believe or what you expect. Sure. Okay, so people are much more uncritical and willing to accept new information that comports well with their prior beliefs and values, whereas information that seems to contradict or conflict with those beliefs and values, they tend to be much more analytical and critical of, mm -hmm. uh, of that kind of information. There's nothing wrong with being critical with that. I think that's probably mostly a good thing, but it's asymmetrical. Whereas, whereas if, if the similar, if a study produces a result that you want to believe, you might be less critical about it. So, there's lots of good reasons to think that that's about as true of scientists as it is of anybody else. So, if I conduct some study where the results come out kind of how I was hoping or what that supports some hypothesis or whatever, I'm likely to say something like, okay, great, let's write this baby up. Whereas if the graduate student who's, say, doing the legwork on the project comes to me and says, you know, boy, you know, not only is there no evidence for the hypothesis, it's in the complete wrong direction. It's completely opposite. What I'm likely to do is frown and look at her and say, are you sure you analyzed the data correctly? Let's go through the data really, really carefully to make sure there's no data errors here. So what do you get? You get, I think this is very common across the disciplines, much more attention, much more sort of motivated attempt to be sure the data really are right when the data are inconsistent with what you think than when the data are consistent, which allows the possibility for data consistent with your beliefs to slip through with less critical scrutiny than data that, that, that conflicts with the beliefs. So I think that's fairly common, actually. And it's subtle. It's like no one thinks... You, it's very easy not to think you're doing anything wrong. You don't even think about it. Mm -hmm. it you, 
the person is not unethical. They're not trying to be unethical. They're not morally challenged. They're not sinister or a sociopath. This is a fundamental aspect of human psychology, this tendency towards confirmation bias. And so this is just a natural thing to do. And it's not, and it's, it's not even always necessarily wrong, like not just morally wrong. It's not necessarily a bad practice, but it can be a bad practice and it can lead kind of, you know, bogus or problematic stuff to slip into scientific literatures. So moving away from like the natural sciences and that that side of things, um, more to the general world, to something our readers or our listeners can more relate to. Um, you know, it seems like nowadays there are ten studies coming out every single week, each making kind of contradictory claims. Or it kind of seems that you can shop around until you find the study that supports whatever belief it is that you're trying to argue for. Um, that combined, you know, with some of these data errors that have been pointed out, a lot of people have been suggesting we kind of live in this post-truth era where it's kind of a relative thing. Um, is is there anything that you could maybe suggest about how we can maybe recognize these kinds of cases in our average lives? Or maybe what is your take on this kind of feeling out there that nothing is really set any, in stone anymore? Everything seems to be up to interpretation. Right. Okay. So science, even at its best, produces understandings that are always subject to change when new information comes in. One of the best examples of that is the theory of evolution, which, when it was first proposed, was believed to produce um, changes in the characteristics of species over very long periods of time. And that is not false. However, one of the sort of modifications to the theory over the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years is recognition that if environmental conditions change radically, you can get very fast evolution of new characteristics, much faster than people would have thought. So that's a modification to the theory. Okay, so one, a certain degree of uncertainty is inherent to the scientific endeavor. And the more lay people understand that, I think the better all of us will be. That's number one. However, at, at the same time, kind of the, the, what I hear the gist of your question is how can people distinguish kind of fact from fiction and sort of noise from signal and, you know, sort of reality from this like fog of opinion that's out there? Certainly not an easy question. You don't expect easy, a, no, it's not a perfect answer. But and especially for a lay person who's not an expert, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it, I can do a deep dive on areas very close to my personal expertise. And once I get beyond that, I'm no different than any other like reasonably informed person. Yeah, you know, I have no particular expertise for distinguishing out what areas of physics or environmental science are more versus less true or more versus less problematic. I don't have that kind of scientific expertise. But in general, I mean, you, there are there are some pecking orders that you can really use. So, uh, if if some claim or conclusion appears in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, whatever flaws there may be, and there are bona fide flaws with that, with taking that as like a reified absolute fact. That's not guaranteed. It's everybody should understand. Even peer-reviewed scientific journals are not usually guaranteed absolute objective facts. But it's a hell of a lot more credible than something some celebrity says. It's a, it's a hell of a lot more credible than what some state assemblyman says or what some lawyer says. So 
when you go about trying to figure out what is likely to be more or less true, considering, considering the source and the nature of the expertise of the source, I think will go a far way to distinguishing kind of signal from noise and fog from sort of clearly what's out there. Okay, so um, a lot to think about there. Um, we conclude every podcast with the same question, um, and we kind of started off with it as well. So um, that question is, what is your personal definition of success, and what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Maybe for those students who don't quite have that aha moment like you. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Success is like, it's like everybody has to define it for themselves. I, I can only define it for me. I can't define it. for I'm not going to define it for anybody else. I am incredibly fortunate that I found this field that I utterly love. I mean, I'm going to do this until I'm physically not capable of doing it anymore. So to me... That's like the ultimate insane. I can't believe starting from where I did, where there was, you know, my starting place was there's no such thing as a career. The idea of even having an intrinsically satisfying job career was like not even on my radar. The jobs were these like onerous things that you had to get through in order to eat. To be here is like an amazing thing. So that's the best I can do. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.